We're going to be reading through 1 Corinthians 1, verses 10 through 17. Divisions in the church. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and there be and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, everyone. Welcome again to Holy Trinity Church. I'm Sully, and I'm one of the pastors here at the church. If you are new or visiting with us, I'm so thankful that you're here. I won't make you stand up, uh, but I do hope to introduce myself to you and shake your hand after the service today. Well, to get started, I'd like to impress you all with my handyman skills. Um, actually, those who know me know that I cannot do that. I am actually not very handy at all. I've been known to make the joke that I can fix anything with just two tools, a credit card and a phone. Maybe in spite of or because of my lack of handyman skills, I've had to learn the good old strength of superglue. I mean, I feel like I can fix anything with superglue. I can fix our dresser at home. I've fixed my shoes before with superglue. It just binds things together almost as if they're new. This is a bit of a goofy way to introduce the topic that I want to talk about this morning. The idea of what holds us together as a church. What is it that makes us an unbreakable community? Today, I want to summarize the sermon, if I could, summarize it in one sentence. Uh, the sermon is this. The only thing stronger than the pull towards division is the power of the gospel. Speaking today on unity, and speaking of unity, it's uh, timely on multiple levels. We've already spoken about a few of the reasons this morning. Here at Holy Trinity, if you're new, you know that we are going through a season of a, a lot of change, a lot of transitions happening from space to personnel. There's just it's a lot happening. And in moments of transition, there's the threat of maybe miscommunication, and miscommunication can lead to confusion, and confusion, well, often it leads to division. So we have to resist the, that pull towards being separated, being fractured, being divided in a season of transition. But even beyond the horizon of just Holy Trinity Church, it's the culture around us. It seems to be pulling apart at its seams. That, Pastor John last week spoke about the, div div uh, the divisions in our culture, that somehow between the combination of the pandemic and the political moment and social media, we've had this perfect storm that has polarized us more than any of us have probably ever experienced before in our life. And even beyond our own nation today, we have already prayed about and lamented that war is broken out in Europe. The images this week of families fleeing their homes have etched into my mind and somehow made me feel as if division 
is a foundational element to the reality of our world. I think I could say this morning that there isn't a single one of us in this room today that over the last year have not had some scars built up on our heart from relationships that have been broken, friendships that we have lost, the strain that all of this has put on us. It feels as if the life that we once knew has in some ways been shattered, and we feel a little exhausted from having to try to hang on to each other in the midst of so much turmoil and so much change. And this morning, you might feel a little fatigued, a little worn out, a little weary, maybe a little bit alone. Well, to the weary, I want to speak a word of hope to you today. And to us as a church, I want to call us to be a, a church that is uh, really an outpost of hope and of unity in a fractured world. So as we get started today, I want to ask the Lord for his help in this. And so would you join me in a word of prayer? Let's pray. Gracious Father, how good it is when your people are united, when we stand together, when we pray for one another, when we give ourselves to one another. Father, I pray today that you, in your grace, in your mercy, you would preserve us. Father, in a world that seems to be pulling apart in every direction, I pray that you would hold us fast as we sing this morning. Father, remind us that that you, as we spoke about this morning, you are our captain, you are our Lord. And so I pray today that I would stand behind your word, that I would speak only what is true and good, and that today your son Jesus would be magnified and glorified. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, we just mentioned that we started a, a new sermon series. We're calling this sermon series in 1 Corinthians, Church on Fire. And last week, Pastor John mentioned a few things that we want to come to mind when you hear or see this image or you hear the title, Church on Fire. The first is, is a really a, a positive thing. When we say that something is on fire, we mean, man, they're, they're un, unbeatable. When we say the bulls are on fire, they're on a wind streak, right? They're very talented. The church in Corinth was, a, in a lot of ways, a talented church. This imagery or this idea that we're talking about here comes from Acts 2, where the Spirit was poured out on the church, and the Spirit has poured out great gifts, spiritual gifts, in the church in Corinth. And Holy Trinity Church, I hope and I pray that the Spirit would be poured out upon us, that we too might be called a church on fire. A second image or a second thing that we want to come to mind when we talk about it this, this idea of church on fire is a little bit more negative. It's the idea of the fires of culture that are surrounding us. In, a, in some ways, it, the church in Corinth had a problem. They were allowing the fires of the culture around them to begin to engulf them. And the fires began to seep into their own community. And so the book, 1 Corinthians, it was written to make them aware of, watch out for the fires of culture. I would hope and I would pray that our time, our sermon series in 1 Corinthians would, would make us more aware of how we can be on guard against the fires of culture and the threat, how they threaten us. But a third uh, reason or image that we want to come to mind when we talk about church on fire is the idea of a refiner's fire, a fire that precious metal is put into to be purified, to be molded and strengthened. The Corinthian church, it had a lot of issues. And Paul is writing to them to call them to maturity, to grow them, to strengthen them, to purify them. I would hope that we as a church in our time in 1 Corinthians, we might grow up a little bit. That we might learn to bring the gospel to bear on every part of our life. I think the thread that holds this book together is Paul's effort to explain how the gospel has something to say to all of life. 
commentators, when they're trying to figure out the structure to the letter of 1 Corinthians, they sometimes get a little confused or it's a little hard to see a full structure in the book because there's just one issue after another that Paul writes about from sexuality to division in the church to marriage and singleness to end times and the resurrection. And it seems like he's jumping all over the place. But the thread that holds this book together is the idea that Paul wants to help the church to bring the lordship of Christ to bear on every part of their life. And so today, we move from uh, what is the greeting, the introduction to the letter, into the body of the letter, where he begins to talk about some issues that are going on. And the first issue at hand is the issue of divisiveness, division that's been happening in the church. And we get to listen in for a moment on what Paul has to say to the Corinthians. Here at Holy Trinity Church, we have a, a vocational ministry training program that we call the Chicago Plan. And the kind of the cornerstone to this program is that Monday afternoons, all of our interns and our residents, they, we gather together, our pastors, we gather together, and a few of the interns will have been assigned a passage to prepare on. And so they prepare it, and then they present it. And then together in a group, they receive feedback. Sounds kind of intimidating, but it's actually been a really cool environment to learn in. And it's very, very intentional that we learn this way. Because whether an intern is sitting in and listening to a discussion and hearing feedback that some other, another intern is getting, they're learning all the while sitting in, in the group. And as we go through the book of 1 Corinthians, we're going to cover a whole bunch of issues. And, and we have the privilege of getting to sit in as Paul teaches and, and corrects and helps the church in Corinth to mature. And might that be the case for us, that we also mature and we learn. As we walk through today's passage, I want to answer three questions. I'll structure our time this way. The first question is, why should we seek unity? Secondly, what threatens our unity? And thirdly, what hope do we have for unity? So turn back in, the, in, in your Bibles, if you have them, or your scripture journals. Open it up uh, to the passage for today and look at verse 10. Here, Paul moves to the body of the letter, and he begins with an imperative, an appeal. He writes, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. I don't know if you've ever had to play mediator in maybe a family dispute or with, uh, with friends, but you might just get to a point where you're just exhausted with trying to mediate and you get to that point where you say, man, can't we all just get along? And you're just fed up with them. Well, Paul, he's not fed up yet. Paul is a little bit more calm, a little bit more thoughtful, and very articulate with what he is calling the church in Corinth to do. He's saying, yes, y'all need to figure out how to get along together, but he's giving them very clear reasons why they ought to, to work towards unity. It's a question I think it's worth asking for us today. Uh, as we have felt the, the pull of our culture in the last two years, that there's been maybe moments that you felt like, gosh, it is a lot easier to retreat into your own silos and echo chambers. It's easier to retreat to be around people that look like you, sound like you, believe in the same things as you. And working towards unity just feels, it's just, man, it's too hard. Why bother with even trying to work towards unity? Well, Paul, in writing, gives us a couple of reasons why we ought to work towards unity. Two reasons here in this first verse. One is more minor and one that's more major. Maybe you've heard uh, the phrase, blood is thicker than water. It's, it's the phrase that family always sticks together. If you notice here that Paul begins uh, verse 10 with saying that he appeals to them, I appeal to you, brothers. 
He begins with that just interjection, that, that reminder that they're brothers. It's a familial term. It, it reminds them that they ought to stick together because family is, they're, they're family and they, they ought to be there for one another. You know, when you've made a lot of mistakes and you've maybe are down and out, you can always depend on calling up a family member to help you out. Here, I think Paul is just trying to just silent, you know, very, very softly remind them, hey, you're a family, and you ought to be able to get, to get along with one another. Martin Luther King Jr. once said, we must learn to live together as brothers or perish together as fools. I think Paul understood that this church was only going to grow in maturity together or not at all. But this reference to brothers, this idea that you know, I appeal to you, brothers, is, is also a, it's a tone-setting type of phrase. It sets a tone for what he's about to do. Uh, I don't know if you maybe have been in a situation, maybe at work, as a manager, or you have a direct report and you need to give some hard feedback, you need to give some correction. Uh, if you've ever been in that situation, you know that it's always a benefit to, before jumping into the critical part, uh, by just reminding the person that you're for them, that you want to see them successful, uh, that you love them, that you care for them, that you're not saying this correction out of spite or anger towards them. And I think Paul, who's about to correct them, Paul, about to call them to, to, hey, shape up, you all need to figure out how to get along, he reminds them that he is, he is their brother, that he loves them, that he wants them to actually grow in maturity, and that he, he cares about them. And so here we have this first just minor reminder that they're family. They ought to be able to get along. But there's a more major reason why I think Paul says we should work towards unity. And it comes after uh, this, this phrase, brothers. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. If you have that scripture journal or you're someone who marks up your Bible, I encourage you to go underline all of the references to Jesus Christ as Lord in the first 10 verses of 1 Corinthians. You'll find that already in verses 1 through 9, the introduction to the book, that Paul has already referenced Jesus Christ as Lord five times. I, if you're someone who writes emails a lot, and you know, before you get into the main content of your email, maybe you have a kind of a throwaway sentence like, wow, what crazy weather we're having, or hope you're, hope you're having a good start to your week, and then you try to get into what really is the matter uh, that you're trying to address. Well, Paul, isn't, doesn't, his introduction isn't just a throwaway. Rather, he is actually very intentional with the way he sets up uh, this letter. And in his introduction, he is constantly reminding almost this repetitive theme about Christ as Lord, that he is their Lord. And so when he comes to the point where he calls them to action, when he places an imperative upon them, he doesn't do it based off of their friendship. He doesn't do it based off of his own authority. But he says, I appeal to you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Look with me just as an example at how verse 9 concludes and how it leads into verse 10. Paul wrote, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Then verse 10, it says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree. Here's the the logic of Paul. He says, hey, if Christ is Lord and Lord of us all, then we ought to seek for unity. When we refer to Christ as Lord, what should come to mind, what should be conjured up in your mind is the idea of a, a conquering creator who sovereignly rules and reigns over all things. What should come to mind is the God who brought Israel out of slavery in Egypt and brought them into the promised land, the one who brings about redemption. What should come to mind is the Lord who 
who conquered sin and death on the cross, the one who, who rightfully lays claim to every inch of creation. That's what we mean when we say Christ is Lord. Paul is pretty specific about what he wants them to agree upon. In this verse 10, he says, you know, I want you all to be in agreement. He says, I don't want there to be any division. I, don't, I want you to be of the same mind, the same judgment. And what is it that he actually wants them to be in agreement about? Well, I think the context tells us that what he wants them to be in agreement about is the lordship of Christ over all things. I think sometimes people have often read verses like this or they think about Christianity and they think, man, Christianity, it crushes diversity. They read a verse like this about you know, being of the same mind and, and being of the same judgment and they think, man, Christianity just is about conformity and conforming to this, maybe this idea uh, that they have about Christianity. That is not what's happening here. Paul is not demanding uniformity. No, the Lordship of Christ does not abolish diversity. It actually allows diversity to be a good thing. The Lordship of Christ over all things means that he is Lord over every city, every nation, every country, every people group, every language, and, and that means that we all come underneath his Lordship, and that diversity becomes a good and beautiful thing. Maybe this is maybe a hindering block for you uh, in accepting Christ as Lord is this idea that, well, if I accept Jesus as Lord, then am I really just saying that I have to conform to, to some kind of an image that you might have in your mind about what it means to be a Christian? Well, Rebecca McLaughlin uh, has actually asked this very question in a book she wrote called Confronting Christianity, and she asked the question, does Christianity crush diversity? And she speaks very pointedly she wrote, she says, read the New Testament, and you will find that trying to marry biblical Christianity to white-centric nationalism is like trying to marry a cat to a mouse. One is designed to hunt the other, not mate with it. The idea of the lordship of Christ, it's not a call to some kind of uniformity or conforming to some white-centric nationalism. No, not at all. Rather, it says that all of us in our beautiful diversity are called to be in agreement that Christ is Lord over us all. So when we come to Paul's exhortation, this appeal, that he calls them to be in agreement, what he's calling us to do is to be in agreement about the Lordship of Christ. I mentioned a little bit ago that it feels like when we read the letter of 1 Corinthians that he's jumping all over the place, a whole bunch of different topics. And really what the, the, the thread that I want you to see throughout this entire book is that what Paul is trying to do as he brings up issue after issue is how does the lordship of Christ have something to say about the issue? That what we're trying to show you in the book of 1 Corinthians is that the lordship of Christ has ramifications, it has implications not only for your Sunday mornings, but every day of the week. It has implications for your sexuality, for your finances, for your friendships, for uh, what you do for a living. It has implications for all of life. The claim that Christ is Lord is a claim that has ramifications for everyone in this room today, whether you claim to be a Christ follower or not. To reference Rebecca McLaughlin again, she, she talks about how sometimes when people hear us claim Christ as Lord, they mistakenly make a distinction that what we mean by that is more like a statement, like my grandma's cooking is better than yours. But really what we mean when we say Christ is Lord is more like the statement, stop smoking, it'll kill you. Do you see the difference between those two statements? One is more of an opinion, more of a kind of subjective thing, whereas the other one, it has implications for you. 
And so I invite you, if you are here this morning and you haven't considered the lordship of Christ over all things, I, I, I call you to, to consider that if Christ is Lord over all things, wouldn't it be reasonable to bring your life into, into devotion and allegiance to him? This morning, I want us to just be in, in prayer that throughout this time in 1 Corinthians, that the Lord would help you to see what areas of your life might need to be brought under the Lordship of Christ. I told my community group this last week that my prayer for us as a church is that we would not be the same church uh, in a couple months from now when we wrap up 1 Corinthians. My prayer is that we would all grow in maturity. And what maturity means is understanding the fullness of Christ's Lordship. So I invite you to just be in prayer that through this time in 1 Corinthians, the Lord would would maybe challenge you, maybe push you out of your comfort zone a bit, but that it might be like the refiner's fire shaping you and molding you. So why should we be united? Because Christ is Lord. But let me move to the second question that I want to answer today, and it's this. What threatens our unity? As we move through the passage, Paul makes very clear why he is writing to them about division in their community. He tells them that uh, a report has come to him through Chloe's people. Chloe's people must have been uh, some people that were well-known in the Corinthian church. And it's thought that Chloe was a businesswoman who had um, either servants or employees who had business that they did in Corinth and then had found their way back and came across Paul and gave them a report about the church. Can you imagine how embarrassing it would be if someone came to Holy Trinity and, and they said, wow, yeah, great church, you know, great music, good kids' ministry, but holy cow, they... They don't seem to get along. They just don't like each other. They're just constantly quarreling. That's the kind of report that came back to Paul. That this church is a talented church, but man, they just, they just don't seem to know how to get along. Paul, wanting to avoid any misunderstanding, makes it very clear what it is he has been told about them. Look back at verse 11, and let's read it together. It says, For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers, What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow Cephas, and I follow Christ. Now, with any conflict, there's a lot to unpack. There's a couple of layers going on here. What's happening in the church in Corinth is that there's a bit of a celebrity culture being created. They're gravitating towards uh, teachers that they all admire and like. This is where a little bit of Cultural context can help us understand maybe what is happening here. The church in Corinth was living more like the culture in Corinth than according to the gospel. What was going on in this moment is that they were finding certain leaders that they thought, you know, really impressed them, and they would gravitate towards them. And so here in the church, they're finding leaders that they admire, and they begin to maybe put them up on a pedestal in ways that they should not. I don't know if, if uh, you've listened to the, the podcast, The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. It's a, a podcast that tells the story of one church that had a really popular, charismatic leader that rose and became quite large and then imploded. I listened to the podcast mainly because I just wanted to hear this story about you know, How could that have happened? That's a, it's a crazy story. And what I found listening to this podcast is that the creators of it didn't just want to kind of talk about this one kind of isolated incidence, they actually spoke about American evangelicalism, that kind of critiquing us and pointing the finger back that actually what caused this problem to happen over here is actually something that's a lot more widespread than we might realize. 
that we as Christians might be, have a tendency to live more according to our culture than we might realize. That we actually might gravitate towards leaders who might exemplify for us the picture in our mind about what someone talented or powerful or charismatic should look like. Paul is calling them out, saying, no, this, this is not how we ought to live. That we as a church are called to live in distinction to the culture. From the very beginning, Christians, the people of God, have been called to live distinctly. From Adam and Eve, who were called to live in a unique relationship to God from the rest of creation, to Abraham, who was called out from among his people and his land to live in faith to the, with the Lord. Israel was called to be a holy nation, a kingdom of priests, to display the character and goodness of God. Throughout Scripture, you continually come across this idea that the people of God are meant to live differently. And it's when we forget that we were called to live in distinction to the rest of the culture that our unity is put into jeopardy. Back last week, we read the introduction to the letter of 1 Corinthians, and a couple of times, kind of a few times, Paul writes about how we as a, as a church, as, as God's people, are called by God. And when we hear that sense of being called, what we mean by that is that we are being called to live in this distinct relationship with God that is, is counter to the way in which our culture would want us to live. And so when we forget this idea that we are meant to live more according to the gospel and less so our culture, it's when we begin to realize division can pop up. Division and quarreling, it's not just a relational issue, it's a gospel issue. When you think about division as just maybe something between you and one other person, it's, it actually might be a symptom of a lot bigger problem. I watched a, um, a documentary about some scientists in Antarctica, and they had this, uh, honestly, I don't know why I was watching it, but they were showing this, uh, this truck that they had that had this machinery that could tell when there was a crack in the ice and that it might indicate that there was a big chasm beneath the snow that could just give in. And so they moved slowly, trying to watch and find out where, the, where these cracks might be. We think that just a few cracks in our, in our community are no big deal. We shouldn't worry about it we are gravely mistaken. When there's a couple of cracks in our community, what might be beneath the, the surface there is a lot bigger issue, a deeper misunderstanding of the lordship of Christ and the gospel. In the letter as we continue, Paul, he writes to make sure they understood, understood just how foolish they were to act in this way. Verse 13, he asks these three questions. He says, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? Every single one of those questions should have an emphatic no to it. No, Christ is not divided. No, Paul wasn't crucified for them. No, they were not baptized in the name of Paul. Paul wants, in, in fact, he goes on to, to write about baptism for a second. He says, I'm, I'm grateful that I didn't actually baptize a whole lot of you so that not many of you can claim to be uh, following me. He's not necessarily trying to minimize baptism in the passage. What he's trying to do is, is show the priority of the gospel, the importance of understanding the implications of the gospel in their life. So Paul's point is that quarreling and divisiveness, it's not a small deal. It's something that should be taken seriously. So I guess I want to ask you today, if there's maybe a broken relationship that you're in, if there's maybe a situation that, you, that maybe needs some healing, some restoration, might you prioritize that this week? And might what actually is going on in this situation, what threatens our unity as a church, 
is that we actually need the gospel not to just be something that we acknowledge you know, intellectually, but something that actually our hearts are shaped by. What happens when we allow ourselves to be shaped more by culture than the gospel is that we begin to act more like the culture that it seeks to pull us apart, that that pull towards division will become a lot easier. And so today, as we think about what, how should the gospel be shaping and forming us, it, it should cause us uh, to realize that there's fires of the culture around us, but instead of being conformed to those fires and those messes, let's be conformed to the gospel. It's ironic, I think, that we can claim to, to want unity and peace in the world, and yet sometimes we don't want to do the hard work of working towards unity and peace in our own homes, in our own neighborhoods. What really gets us over that, uh, that hurdle of trying to seek unity and, and peace in our homes and healing divisions, well, it's going to take the gospel doing, doing some work on our own hearts and bringing the lordship of Christ to bear on every part of our life. So why should we be united? Because Christ is Lord. What threatens our unity? Well, it's, it's when we conform to the ways of the world and not the way of Jesus that our unity becomes jeopardized. But let me ask one last final question, and it's this. What hope do we have for unity? It seems as if right now there's not a lot of hope for unity. It seems as if uh, things have just been too divided. Our world is, is too fractured, and it doesn't seem like there's anything that's actually going to be able to pull us back together. And I want to show you in the final verse here, verse 17, why, how Paul begins to point towards some hope for us in this endeavor of seeking unity. Verse 17, he writes, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent, eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. You see, our hope for unity, it can't be rooted in a charismatic leader. Our hope for unity as a church can't be rooted in a, a church building, can't be in having you know, the best music or the best kid children's ministry. Our hope has to be rooted in the power of the cross. What's going on in verse 17 is a bit of a transition that Paul begins to go through. He, he is beginning to transition to talk about the foolishness of the wisdom of Corinth and the, the wisdom, the true wisdom of the cross. You see, when Paul comes, he doesn't come to speak with eloquent words, which would have been expected of someone coming in that culture, trying to gain a following. The way that you did so was by speaking eloquently, by speaking with charisma, by, by being someone who just carried themselves in a way that gravitated, people gravitated towards. And Paul's saying, that's not what I meant, came to do. What I came to do was to preach a gospel that, that really displays not my, the impressiveness of me, but rather the impressiveness of the, of the cross. What Paul preached was a message that began to flip things on its head. That when we look at the cross, he says, what once looked like weakness begins to look like strength. What once looked like foolishness begins to look like wisdom. What once looked like defeat begins to look like victory. And so our hope for unity in this world is kind of this subversive power of the cross. The hope that I have for us, Holy Trinity Church, in the midst of a culture that's on fire, how are we going to hold together? Well, it's going to be by believing in and living out of the power of the cross. And so as we begin to wrap up this morning, I want to get real practical for a few moments and speak about how the power of the cross can actually be very tangible in how we can work towards unity together. So first off, division often begins with someone hurting someone else. 
And once you're hurt, you tend to hurt back. And so it creates this inevitable cycle of hurt on hurt on hurt. And the only thing that can bring disruption to this cycle of hurt is forgiveness. And the power of the cross, what Christ does on the cross is he actually offers us forgiveness. That the cross is this massive disruption to the cycle of hurt in our culture. And so as you and I as Christians who believe in the power of the cross, believe that it's at the cross that we find forgiveness and that we've been forgiven all, we should be a people who can forgive much. And so when we think about the power of the cross and living out of the power of the cross, we, we believe that we can actually disrupt patterns of division by offering forgiveness. And so a very tangible thing you can do this week to seek unity is to simply ask the question, is there anyone that you need to go seek forgiveness from? Or maybe yet, is there anyone that you need to offer forgiveness to? Secondly, the power of the cross, uh, it, it's what we should be living out of in order to seek unity. And a divisive spirit often says, I'm better than you. Causing division is kind of like saying, I need to create separation. I'm better, you're worse. I'm right, you're wrong. That's what a divisive spirit says. It's a, a kind of a mentality that, that thinks that, man, I need to get myself ahead. I need to prove myself, justify myself as better than you. What the cross tells us is that we're not better than anybody else. What the cross does, it tells us that though we are no better than anybody else, we have, ex we have received extraordinary love, love that we don't deserve. And having been provided everything that we could ever need, having been given a new identity, having the security that comes from knowing Christ on the cross, we now, we now no longer need to try to self-justify ourselves or be selfish, but rather we can serve. The power of the cross enables us to serve one another. And so, who might you serve this week? To create unity in our church, it's going to take serving one another. The power of the cross, it teaches us to forgive. It teaches us to serve. But one final thing, the power of the cross, well, it teaches us the value of suffering. It's on the cross that, that we look to Christ, who is the one who paid the ultimate cost for our unity. Unity comes at great cost. Unity is not the idea of, you know, just ease or, or uh, the absence of hardship. Rather, unity is forged through great suffering. Winston Churchill became prime minister of England in the first year of World War II, and he had uh, the daunting task of trying to hold his country together, to call them uh, to unity in a time of trial. And this is what he said in his first speech to the House of Commons. He said, I would say to the House, as I said to those who have joined this government, I have nothing to offer but blood, toil, tears, and sweat. You have before us, and we have before us, an ordeal of the most grievous kind. We have before us many, many long months of struggle and of suffering. He comes to his country who he's trying to create unity, and he says, look, our success together is going to rise and fall based on how well we can suffer together. And what he tells the House of Commons is that he will stand before them, and the only thing he can offer them is his very blood, his sweat, his tears, his toil. Christ, who calls us to unity, because remember, Paul's making this argument. I appeal to you, brothers, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the Lord who is the one who has gone before us and has paid the ultimate price that we might be united together, and he paid that with his own blood. And so as we think about what, what would hold us together, what is going to neutralize the threat, that pull towards division? 
Well, it's going to be a mentality of love for one another that leads towards suffering for one another. Then actually, uh, divisiveness might seem like the logical thing according to the wisdom of the world, but the wisdom of the cross shows us that suffering is the better way, that through suffering we might be held together. And Christ goes before us as the one who has, has paid the ultimate cost. And so Holy Trinity Church, as, as internal and external threats come against us as a church, and the, that pull to division becomes stronger and stronger and you become weary, might we live according to the wisdom of the cross, the power of the cross, and the gospel, and not the wisdom of the world. So today, I just want to remind you and give you some hope that if you are weary, a little exhausted from trying to hold together friendships, trying to, trying to keep pressing on in a world that seems so divided, might you find hope that uh, we as a church who are called to unity, we find our strength, we find our hope in the one who has paid the ultimate price, the ultimate cost. Paul would, I'll finish with this, Paul later in the writing to the church in Philippi, he, he wrote this, he says, have the same mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. And now Christ has, has been raised, and every knee shall bow and acknowledge him as Lord. Would you pray with me? Our gracious and loving Father, we come before you because we feel, we feel the pull towards division. Father, you were the one who was torn apart so that we might actually be brought together. And so I pray today that our love, our devotion, our admiration for you would sink deep into our bones. I pray today, Lord, that you would help us to have a new love for one another, a love that's willing to forgive, a, a love for one another that's willing to serve and to suffer for each other. Might, Father, you show us the wisdom of the cross. Might you show us the better way of living. Might you show us how the Lordship of Christ is something that is freeing, something that is good and beautiful and right. So, Father, conform us to the gospel. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.